0: Thank <music>
1: Space Cave a big warg to all of you. Um, this show is made possible by contributions from listeners just like you. You can become a patron at patreon/spacecave. And if you, if that doesn't work, search David Huntsberger. And in that bonus episode or the early release, you hear this full conversation all the way through, not broken into parts. I also discuss uh, some excuses as to why there was a little lag or being a week behind. It involved uh, hospitalizations and uh, some sickness. Everything's okay, but um, you get some behind the scenes look at the Patreon. Otherwise, new episodes of Intercepts coming soon. There are currently new episodes of These Are Those Tapes, which is an improv podcast I do with my friend Wendy Molino. Find that wherever you find podcasts, as well as DavidHuntsberger.com. If you have suggestions or requests for this show, pings at thespacecave.com. You can also find it on various social media and reach out there for guest requests, uh, beer, we're going to get back to that hopefully soon, music, any number of things. Maybe there's something wrong, you want to fact check something, you can reach out there. Overall, I think if you listen to this show, you... I'm impressed because I think the world is filled with a lot of uh, reality and kind of mindless things. And if you have found this show with these conversations, hopefully you're doing it while going on a walk and experiencing nature and or maybe you're just in your car or you're on a bike ride. I don't know. But I'd like to think that this show allows you to do something engaging while also stimulating your mind a little bit. I think a planet doing that might get a shade better as opposed to fighting and tearing itself apart, as it seems to be doing. So come on in here, a nice warm space to get away from all that. Think about something else. And this is a great conversation to do that with the highly intelligent, the very kind to spend some of his time. I don't know how he has the energy to, like, raise numerous children, have endless hobbies and undertakings and tasks. I don't think he sleeps. Maybe he's a cyborg or somehow bionic, but he just seems to endlessly be pursuing uh, things that better his his being learning um, pursuing, attempting, and a lot of achieving and so we talk about his new endeavor at terraform Industries return guest uh, here 's part one with Casey Ham
0: awesome.
1: well i'm i 've begun recording. I should, I mean, sometimes I feel like I shouldn't say that because then it, it adds like an element of... You can always cut that off later. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, we're hearing that. our... When I think whenever you're hearing your own voice in your ears, you're a little more, not concerned, but aware of like, oh, what I'm, should what I am saying right now matter more?
2: But, I better not say anything mean about my enemies. You know. <laughs> <laughs> to, is all is,
1: to all Casey Handmer's haters out there, brace yourselves. Get ready.
2: <laughs> Actually... I'm relatively fortunate, I think, in that I've attracted very few detractors thus far. See, so my my harshest critics are people I know well and and uh, and greatly admire. So,
1: and man, I'm glad you brought that up straight away because I think I was I've had this discussion recently with people that when you're really not even just well educated, when you're very bright and noticeably bright, and think of the people that you're maybe referring to or people like them. I'm thinking of. Um, Richard Feynman, or anyone kind of from that era, where you could get kicked out of school because you challenged the status quo, but then another university would say, "Come, come study here," and you could just bounce around and give lectures. At play. You're 17 years old, giving lectures on, you know, particle dynamics or something, where you're like, your detractors, the people in the crowd. Get up and leave. Laugh at you. There's so many stories of like oh, I always saw that person's lecture these and everyone. Days, no,
2: no one would even show up. <laughs> <laughs> Is that
1: the ultimate sign of this? be on TikTok somewhere.
2: No, I mean, I, it's kind of a funny thing. I was just at a at a conference on Wednesday uh, for work, and you know, a bunch of people sitting in a room listening to some speakers and panels and stuff. And I thought, you know, it wasn't that long ago that if you wanted to find out what these people who were generally you know politicians or or senior leaders thought. You you have to go to the conference, yeah, right? and then you had to try and like nail them down at the coffee stand or something. But um, but nowadays it's the case that you know if you show up well prepared, you've watched their previous conference hearings on YouTube and you've read their Twitter feed and and stalked their likes on Twitter and you've read their blog posts and you've <laughs> talked to their publicists and all the rest. It's extremely unusual for anyone to say anything unexpected, anything that you didn't already know, mm-hmm. um, anything that you would not expect them to say, or for them to be just a question which challenges them. In, in any way, but actually, at this particular conference, they had a couple of chairs who who did actually ask somewhat spicy questions. Um, questions that perhaps if the if the you know the people being asked had answered them honestly, would have you know in some ways undermined the entire purpose of their really of their of their <laughs> of their career or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I was like, um, I don't I don't know if I should get too specific, but like one of the one of the um, one of the people there was a, the the CEO of a of a startup that's building hydrogen aircraft. Um, and of course, hydrogen is a, an interesting fuel for a variety of reasons, but, um, one of its limitations is that, um, the amount of energy that you can actually fit on an airplane in the form of hydrogen is quite low. And so that the range of an aircraft with that's powered by hydrogen is quite low, um, or quite short. Um, and, and obviously like you know, most aircraft don't fly huge long distances, but most of the fuel, at least on a per passenger basis is spent on the very long distance flights. Um, and so the question this chair asked was like, well, you know, what what fraction of the uh, uh of a- aviation fuel can be displaced you know with your system it's like pretty <laughs> pointy because like just right off the top we're kind of diving into climate change here but like right off the top only two percent or so of, of global emissions come from aviation um, or, you know roughly two percent of oil goes into planes which again on a per capita basis is, is enormously high mm-hmm. um you know, per person on the plane it's quite high but but in terms of the overall usage patterns you know you could delete planes overnight you could ban private jets it would not make a whit of difference to climate change at all um yeah wow <laughs>
1: that's interesting to hear because i think uh when people think of flying private or there can be a very you know how dare you it feels if you're Envy. gonna take time to sort your recycling but then hop on a private jet like what are you doing so that, does every mm-hmm. little aggregate I mean, matter it's a multidimensional thing
2: it? yeah yeah i mean i mean sorting recycling so arguably that that can like reduce the volume of material that ends up in landfill mm-hmm. but like landfills effect on climate is second order at best it's mm-hmm. so, like depending on how landfills run you might end up with like a lot of methane emission or something that can accentuate climate but but you know we're flying these missions now satellite missions which are able to actually measure how much methane is being emitted all over the world and most of it is essentially naturally occurring like you know, wetlands and things um
1: so, like, when they talk about the permafrost, to you know, to...
2: well, well, if that if that if that lets go, it could be very exciting. But uh, meth- <laughs> methane, methane's an interesting one. Um, I like
1: when you say exciting because they've painted it in these catastrophic sort of oh, it'd be this huge, un you know, un, previously unforeseen emission that would have catastrophic effects, presumably. But you're like, oh, it'd just be kind of fun to watch, it'd be exciting.
2: Yeah, uh, no, it would be it would be pre- it would be pretty bad. Um, I think actually. Uh, i think one of the reasons that we have a challenge in in kind of um you know cross-aisle communication on climate change for example although you know i'd say a positive development in that regard over the last few years has been an increasing consensus that you know climate change is occurring and it's, it is anthropogenic um but one of the problems is that you know if you if you listen to the loudest voices on the left they're typically you know um kind of buying into like end of the world cult type verbiage. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, the world's gonna end and it's and a lot of people are gonna die and, and um you know civilization is gonna collapse and, and things. And I think that's actually um if anything, it's not that it's not accurate, it just doesn't really go far enough. Um it does it's not too, it's not specific enough. And on the right it's kind of like, well humans all adapt, humans have always adapted, which I guess is also true. Um but you know generally when you say humans are adapting, what you mean is that like the poor people are having their houses wrecked yet again. Um, and I think that people just generally underestimate the sheer inconvenience and, and hassle and cost and and human cost uh, that will be wrought by you know large volumes of low-lying land being being flooded and and you know, potentially restarting global hunger, which hasn't really been a thing. I mean, like when I was younger, we had a, a major famine in in um, uh, a major famine in in Ethiopia, and there was more recently a famine in Yemen. But like essentially, in both cases, these were. Um, partly natural but mostly kind of weapons of war frankly like Mm -hmm. mostly mostly engineered um mostly avertible mostly something that we could have dealt with at the time but not that long ago um i'd say essentially everywhere on earth up until the 1880s and most places on earth well into the 1930s uh famine was something that everyone would experience sooner or later Mm -hmm. right um and and in some parts of the world you'd experience pretty frequently you know and um yeah and so we kind of take for granted that. That doesn't happen anymore, but it would definitely be occurring if we were not running enormous Haberbosch plants making lots of nitrogen, uh, you know, ammonia fertilizer. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it's just it's just a fact of life. Um, I actually had the privilege a couple of months ago of, of visiting the the first plant in Germany where that was done in the 1910s, um, where, you know, it was first um, commercialized in a place called Leuna, uh, so basically wow, just outside of Leipzig.
1: I wonder how many people would go to Germany and, and get to experience that and know about it, know the history, go to that plant and be like, oh yeah, I know this is,
2: this is really something to see Well, this. people go to the plant all the time. It's, it's still there. It's, um, it's absolutely enormous. It's like 1,300 hectares. Um, but people, um, I'd say they mostly go there, go there for work. The number of people who'd go there, I mean, ostensibly I was there for work as well, but like really I was being a tourist. Um, but the, the number of people who'd, who'd go to this plant for tourism reasons yeah it's a very small club. <laughs> yeah, I was it's say. a very small club <laughs> i mean like i could imagine people going to this town because they have relatives there or something if they're traveling within europe or within germany or, or maybe even overseas but yeah actually i have a friend who, who lives in the area i'll ask him like, do you know of anyone else like you know like ammonia stands coming just to like you know stand at the gate and and, and pay uh, pay their respects uh to where it all began and i don't even think they make ammonia there anymore um i think they, they make mostly like you know plastic precursors and stuff but um yeah, most of the local coal mining is, has closed down now. So,
1: Well, last time we, we spoke, you were – or last time we saw each other, you gave us a tour of JPL, being my partner, and that was fantastic. We saw oh, Perseverance before it left, and that – what a thing to like – to be able to tell people, oh, yeah, I saw that like in construction. I was so close to it, and now it's on a different planet. That's me being third party to it and you like working in the, the belly of the beast, for lack of a better term, yeah, and being so close to it. That, and then that project's gone. It sails away, and then now you're at well, this Well, it's plant. still working. Oh, but, but I mean, <laughs> like, it's around. not yeah. in your facility where you can look at it physically. Yeah, so. I'd say
2: it's highly unlikely at this point that we build another rover that looks like that.
1: Really? It's yeah. just the technology's advanced too much, or?
2: Yeah, well, so in terms of Mars exploration, um, Perseverance was kind of the last thing on the docket. Mm-hmm. And so that's why JPL snuck in the um, Ingenuity helicopter, just as they did the rover on Mars Pathfinder in 1996. Um which basically um, business development is internally funded. Um, JPL hardly ever does anything with their own money, right? <laughs> <laughs> like just as a rule. Uh, that's not how they operate. Um, so they, they paid for this themselves. Um, as a result, it was very leanly run and, and rather cheap compared to everything else. Um, and it's worked great. It's like 50-something flights now. Um, and so there's kind of studies ongoing, and I think they're looking to um, to get directed funding to to build a Mars science helicopter, which would be like a slightly larger perhaps a fleet of slightly larger more capable helicopters and and um yeah i mean i it's been like a very thought-provoking i mean i was i was in the room when when mars helicopter was first unveiled um at at caltech many years ago and and i was like well we obviously need a fleet of these because like the current lander system can drop a ton on the surface but you can't build a helicopter that big on mars is not enough not enough air, so you have to kind of go you know a fleet of drones or something um (laughs) and then you know you kind of have a standard instrument platform or payload and multiple like third parties can develop you know, cameras and spectrometers and robot arms and drills and stuff and you can integrate them you know by the dozens if not by the hundreds uh and then launch them all at once that'd be so cool um as far as i know that's not quite what they're looking to do uh, i think they're looking to build um slightly larger helicopters maybe you know the size of motorcycles something like that obviously much lighter uh and then fly those around um but i don't think that's that's a full conclusion yet and then there's the um the mass sample return mission which is kind of in dire straits now uh, unfortunately for for reasons that were broadly anticipated but but not really fully addressed and because I don't work there anymore I can say stuff like that <laughs> less obliquely than usual um, and in some ways on behalf of, of people. I do not speak for people who work there obviously but um, but you know there are certain things that, that, that they, they also can't say and, and are not necessarily um, legible to the external you know, to the outside world or the external, you know, the greater population. Um, yeah. A, it kind of comes out in code. And I do have a blog post in the works where I kind of explain when this person says this, what they really mean is this. Because um, for those of yeah. us
1: just getting that information through, maybe not, you know, when it's disseminated to the broader public and just um, a news article or something, we get those tidbits of, like, oh, I guess we're going to Mars or I guess we're going mm-hmm. to, try to put people there. Or something.
2: Yeah. Most people don't know very much about it. Yeah. Um, and it's not like I guess if you're curious, you could you could go on on the websites and click around and look at the pictures and, and there's um it's a guy on YouTube called Marsguy who does update videos almost every day. Um uh, basically like scrubbing through the latest video, uh, photos that have come down, which are all published, they're all publicly available. Yeah. Um a number of people I know kind of started their career just kind of downloading these these raw images from NASA's website and then like putting them in Photoshop and fixing them because um JPL's image processing software, which actually had the arguably good fortune uh to work on for a while uh is not oriented towards making them look good for human eyes necessarily Mm -hmm. uh it's oriented oriented towards um engineering purposes of basically like helping them do navigation and then and then also um you know color grading in a way that that makes it look more like earth rock so that earth geologists can see what's going on um but that doesn't really help you as a you know random person on the internet understand what it would actually look like if you were standing on mars yeah uh, or, or you know st- staple together all these panoramas or make videos or whatever so it's it's quite a cottage industry of people who do that now and a good number of them actually work at jpl now like they got so good at it that jpl <laughs> was like okay fine you can come we'll pay you um <laughs> which is super cool um and, and not just with the mars uh instruments also with you know some, some other some other satellites which is super cool. Um, and there's actually, you know, it's a very exciting thing actually that if you dump enough data on the internet, the, the geeks of the world will find it and they will collate it and create it and find useful things to do with it for you. It's one of the major obstacles we find with Earth observation imagery or the industry which does that, um, which my, my wife works for now actually. But, um, but you know, essentially there's, there's a bunch of different companies that are doing satellite imaging with uh, cameras or with, with radar and most of them are basically making it very hard to get your hands on the data without paying a lot of money. Yeah. Which means that, you know, you basically you cut out all the the people with infinite free time who are prepared to experiment and figure out product <laughs> market fit for you. Um which is, you know, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, but it's also um I think I think people generally un- underestimate um you know how how useless it is to have imagery of places where no one lives and no one cares about. Yeah. Um, the reality is most humans live on a very very small slice of the earth's surface. When we
1: first got in here into this new studio, we were talking about just the the beginnings of podcasting a little bit, oh, yeah. and I think the the impetus to, to start something like this was the uh, how science at the time felt very. We're going to come out with a scroll and open it, read it, and head back into our castle. And people down below be like, "Wait, I, I'm interested in that." And now moving ahead and open source and finding out that the collaborative effort can be useful. If like, hey, here's the information. Does anyone have the ability to crack this code? They've yeah. used that a number of times in like solving crimes. And then uh, I think of like the January 6th, the FBI would put out these really grainy photos that look like they were taken from like a storage facility's uh, motion sensor camera, like pixelated. And then people on the internet would fix them and go, "Here, here's your photo. Here's a better version with yeah. very simple software. And at, you know, for a place like JPL, there has to be such a, some trepidation to be like, can we give this
2: image to... Oh, well, they have to. They, uh, by, that, by law, they have yeah, to. It's have to it. Yeah, it's public domain. Well, I'm not sure if the licensing actually is, is like, you know, open source in that in that sense, but, but you know, it's it's publicly funded and they do have to release the data. And actually, I wish that you, we saw that more generally um, in, in science in general. Like publicly funded science should be publicly available um, and almost all science is publicly available and yet almost all of it, sorry, is publicly funded and yet almost all of it is behind really abusive paywalls uh, kind of maintained by a very small handful of, you know, duopoly or monopoly publishers um, that basically obscure it all. And, th- and the horrifying thing actually is that, is that the vast majority of, of published papers are not very, use- not very good. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll put it that way. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of fraud. There's a lot of um, just shit science that goes on in the background that is uh, concealed you know, f- by, by this whole process. Uh, yeah. so, so it may be the case that, you know, you want to get access to the one good, article that was published in a particular journal. But in order to do that, you have to buy a year long subscription to a hundred different journals because they bundle them. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Um, I mean, I, I can say this, but like definitely do not go and look at Sci-Hub, which, uh, legally collates, uh, free copies of publicly funded science that was done by unpaid and underpaid researchers. Um, <laughs> and then captured by abusive publishers. Definitely do not look at Sci-Hub. Um, <laughs> uh, Sci-Hub dot, uh, yeah, definitely don't look at it. Um, but uh, but it's there, and and actually the really exciting thing is that with these new AI tools, people are like starting to scrub through these things, and I know I know a number of people have essentially made a second career um, automating the search for for fraudulent data. It's actually kind of scary um, that um, well, it's kind of this open question, which is like there's four or five hundred different different active active fields of science, you know, depending on how you count, um, and some of them are obviously making great progress, and some of them really not so much, and so you you have to wonder like why is it that some particular, you know, corners of the academy um kind of stagnate. Mm-hmm. And um and it turns out that at least in some of the cases it's because, you know, essentially by path dependent contingents you know, random chance, uh people end up in charge who are either unscrupulous or or not very clever or just have bad ideas. And <laughs> um and because of the way it's set up, you know, uh for a variety of different reasons, it's it's it basically you know, that, that science can only advance one death at a time. Um, but, but, you know, this, this, it's kind of, it's kind of funny in one, one aspect, but it does have a real human cost, which is that, um, you know, the, the example I'm thinking of right now is that, is that, uh, you know, essentially the last 20 or so years of, of Alzheimer's research, um, which you know, results in the deaths of, of millions of people every year, um, has, uh, come out, but they basically made shit up and they're fraudulent and they doubled down and they fired the researchers who tried to call them out on it. And they, you know, um, basically ganged up with, with their, um, with the publishers and with and with their um, buddies, uh, kind of work across the wall in the funding agencies and so on, and uh, and managed to exclude you know uh, people who are like this thing you're saying it's a thing it's not a thing you know so we have two decades of work trying to work on on drugs that can you know, potentially address plaque accumulation in mouse models or something, and and um, it doesn't work it doesn't work and it doesn't work for reasons that in, in hindsight now that we have these much more advanced um, you know, data analysis tools and so on it was very clear the scary thing is that these people are now often very senior, including the president of Stanford University. Oh, man. Right? Like, the president of Stanford University. Whew, more, more responsible than any other person, uh, possibly. Uh, more responsible than any other person for essentially 20 lost, lost years in, in fighting neurological degradation in young people. You know, And our relatives do in care. <laughs> Yeah. These, these people I, on, on my worst days I, I, I say like, these people should be prosecuted and, and you know, to the full extent of the law and on the worst days I say, on, you know, on my other days I say well, maybe they should be just made to, to work in aged care and, and, and you know, come face to face with the consequences of their moral failings for the rest of their career and the rest of their life um, I, I really cannot condemn them harshly enough uh, it's, it's shocking it's appalling uh, and it's driven by self-interest and greed these people should be ashamed
1: yeah you were warned haters brace yourselves the, did you <laughs> see the show Dope Sick? It's on Hulu. Like, um, uh, no, I'm oh, sorry, I, or Dawson. I don't really watch TV. Sorry. Okay, so it 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 tells a story of the Purdue Pharma <laughs> sort of uh, how difficult it was to take that down when there's, and I'm thinking in terms oh, of like, addictive, yeah, yeah, some, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, same same story. I mean, like, yeah, people like things, and you can make money by selling things to people that people like. Yeah. Um, and uh, sometimes, or quite often the degree to which those things are good for people is quite distinct from the degree to which they like them. Um, so, yeah. When you uh,
1: talk about perfect science, not perfect science, but the idea that something is pure. Like I was talk- like, so the writer strike, you have people that have financial interests in mind and maybe the, the people building that or making that or doing the best they can don't interest them as much as mass accumulation of as much revenue as possible. That's yep. the, just tan- pa- paramount to everything. Yeah, yeah, So then you're like, but but if you would just play fairly, that something... <laughs> Beautiful could be made that impacted people, changed their lives, made them feel better, enlightened them, whatever that might be, and then that that translates to everything so scientifically if you it feels like in the world of science right now there's kind of what are we going and exploring, and what can we do right here on this planet to make it sustainable a little longer? It hmm. seem like the two branches that are the most that draw people 's attention the most, and everything. Outside of that, like you just mentioned, research for uh, cures for illnesses and ailments. And those are big, too. There's obviously a number of sciences within just this planet that everyone's daily pursuing. But if you, I think just maybe that falls in the category of sustainability, keeping things good here. So that'd be that science and then the exploration.
2: I think we can do them both at once. I, I mean, just to go back to the the climate problem again. Um yeah I, I see this much more clearly than I did last time I was on the show you know, okay all your, all your listeners who who no doubt well good remember intimately those those episodes that we did but um <laughs>
1: I'm always curious about that
2: yeah it's it's a um this is this is kind of thing and, and actually I saw this a lot when I was in Europe when I was visiting some friends there and and, and colleagues um because you know I, my, I haven't told your listeners this yet but i have started a, a, a climate focused startup that um, is basically making synthetic fuel um from from sunlight and air and there's all kinds of good reasons to do dude, that, dude.
1: When you so when you just when you were talking about the plane and the hydrogen, I was like, so I write this scripted show, and it mm. has a climate change element involved in it and whenever the aliens who are more advanced than us are kind of talking to the humans, yeah, yeah. they're kind of disappointed that we didn't figure out ways to utilize our own resources in a very efficient and much more powerful way.
2: Well, we're getting there. We're, we're getting, getting there. there. And we're I think there.
1: of a plane flying through and knowing hydrogen is in the air and having some sort of a shield in front of it that is capturing it, processing <laughs> it, and fueling it. It's sort of perpetual well, motion.
2: kind of how jets work already, right? Like. Mm-hmm. Most of the mass of the jet's exhaust is is oxygen, which is already in the air. Mm-hmm. Right, so so you just you only have to carry the fuel with you. You burn it, um, but the oxygen is heavier than the fuel, quite a bit heavier than the fuel, and that's why why, why rockets have to be quite a bit heavier and their engines significantly more aggressive because uh, they have to carry their own oxygen as well, which adds to their mass significantly. <laughs> I saw the, um, the Starship launch this morning; that was pretty pretty sweet. Um, now, there's this kind of belief, and it's particularly common in Europe, unfortunately, that, that you know, the only way we can solve the climate problem is essentially by reducing our personal footprint uh, carbon footprint um quite substantially and 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 to do that we would have to essentially you know reduce average consumption in in the west in the developed countries um by maybe a factor of 20 uh and, and in the developing countries um essentially wind back the development you know 50 60 70 years uh which which you know basically takes us back to a world where you are producing and consuming oil more slowly than than plants can absorb it um uh, you know in order to stabilize c o two in the atmosphere um but that's a that's a horrible world uh we know how that world was. I just mentioned before like it's a world where starvation was um you know a certainty at some point in your life if you live long enough, you can die some other way um where most of the world's population uh is um born into and can never escape from grinding poverty and most likely coerced labor um let's be let's be perfectly blunt here it's not a good world. Um, it's not a world that attracts people. It's not a world people want to go back to. Uh, most people. It's a world that people, if they can, will vote against, and if they can't, will fight against with pitchforks and mm-hmm. and burning torches, right? And and so like there isn't a nation on earth from you know United States uh, as a as a um, you know ostensible democracy all the way to China as an ostensible autocracy that could impose this sort of poverty on their people voluntarily or without you know the impact of of massive massive state-sponsored violence or or possibly nuclear war and so we should not really want to do that but yet at the same time um you know we don't have enough oil to really extend the benefits of of the sort of wealth that you and i enjoy to eight billion people so not not enough in the ground Uh, and if we keep on burning even the stuff that we do have we will cause kind of this this climate catastrophe or catastrophic problem where where sea levels rise quite quickly and and really fuck up our infrastructure um in in a way that will, you know, additionally make us make us poor uh, at the very least, and and also be dreadfully inconvenient for people who are not as wealthy or able to adapt as us, who don't have the same level of state capacity, et cetera, et cetera, uh, who live in low lying areas. Um, and so, essentially, it's an unsolvable problem, right? Like, it's I used to think that well, you know, the politicians screwed us over, and and they didn't enforce the Kyoto Protocol, and if we just you know turn off the oil wells in the nineteen nineties, we'd be okay by now. Uh, but we had no way of turning off the oil wells. We really didn't. <laughs> it's not the case that you can just like ground Taylor Swift's jet and then like all these problems go away. Yeah. Um, really, when you say we don't, we, we don't want people to use oil, it's the same as saying we want oil to be so expensive people can't afford to use oil, which for most people makes a difference between farming by hand or farming with a tractor. Mm-hmm. Right. And farming with a tractor means that your children will live to adulthood. And farming by <laughs> hand means that some of them will not. And most people do not want to accept that. I don't want to accept that. I think it's fundamentally anti-humanist. So the only way to get around this is to find a better cheaper more abundant form of energy that humans can use to enable more humans to have better lives richer lives more 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 um more prosperous lives um at the same time as that form of energy absolutely needs to be uh less damaging to to the climate uh significantly (laughs) less damaging to the climate and actually co2 by itself if it did not cause climate change would not be such a big deal right um uh, the, the Plants, plants love it. Trees are growing like crazy. I don't know if you've noticed, but like since I was a kid, plants grow a lot better now than they did back then, <laughs> um and that's mostly because of extra CO two in the air. um And if uh, you if you're, if you're uh, an alien spacecraft flying around the Earth looking down, you, the countries that are emitting a lot of CO two are the ones where people are having good life, right? Mm-hmm. North Korea not really a problem as far as climate change goes, right? Because most of the people there are on the edge of starvation because they don't have fuel because you know it's an autocratic regime. Um, so. <clears throat> So, so you know, the only answer really is we need to find a supply chain for hydrocarbons that is carbon neutral, uh, and it needs to be cheap, and needs to be abundant, and it needs to be scalable. And That's what we're building at Terraform Industries. So, uh, Terraform Industries. If you want to come and work with us, you know, check out our open postings on the on the website. But yeah, I love it. Um, but you know, that, that's that's basically the only the only and, you know the, the only way this works is if you have a, a cheaper form of energy upstream of the synthesis process, um, which is what we're doing, and the, and basically it's solar power, right? So solar photovoltaics has gotten roughly. 10 or 15 or 20% cheaper every year since 1970. And it started off at you know several thousand times more expensive than, than burning oil for energy. And now it is uh, about 10 times cheaper. And it's still getting cheaper every year. And it's just arrived in the nick of time, i got to say. <laughs> uh, but it, it's crazy. Like uh, last year, globally, we put out about 268 gigawatts of, of solar power, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for reference, about 400, uh, 400 or 500 gigawatts of nuclear power globally. has uh, been built since 1950-something. Um and uh and this year we're on track to about four hundred and seventy gigawatts, almost almost twice as much. Yeah. Um now there are um there's about five hundred and twenty five thousand minutes in a year, uh, if you know the song. So um so we're we're getting damn close to one megawatt per minute. Right. So one megawatt solar array is about five acres. Uh it's about five hundred feet on a side. It's like several football fields worth of solar panels per minute globally. Right. Like this is this is going in fast. Okay, it's not there's nowhere near as fast as we like sow corn or something like that. But like as far as as far as deployment of, of infrastructure it can actually make a difference it's going and is super the fast
1: efficiency of the square footage I suppose that's not going to change a whole lot
2: no actually so one of the cool things about about solar is that um, its economic productivity is about 100 times higher on a per area basis than farming so if for example you're a person and you have access to land that is not not productive right it's just you know, say um, fallow or dry desert or whatever. Um, and you're able to bring water and fertilizer in, in irrigate and farm, uh, then you can you know you can make a couple hundred bucks per acre, uh, at least in the United States. Um, you're making corn or soy, um, and if you have you know tens of thousands of acres, now you're talking, right? Yeah. Um, but um, but solar power, you know, it, it costs roughly a hundred times more to to put a solar array out on an acre of land than to plant your plants and bring your water in yeah um but it's economic productivity is about 100 times higher the revenue is about 100 times higher as well so so if if you have access to capital you can significantly increase your um economic productivity per unit area and this is actually a super cool thing uh and and that that actually includes the factor that um that the cost of energy in the form of food is about 100 times higher than the cost of energy in the form of of fuel right so it costs you roughly the same amount to keep your car fueled uh, as it does to keep your family fueled um, even though your car consumes about a hundred times more energy, because um, <laughs> it goes away faster and it's way heavier. Um, what
1: about these from like a remedial standpoint? In that like I'm from Nevada, yeah. You drive through Eastern Nevada.
2: Nevada is is going to be the solar the solar panel of the future. Just you, just you wait. Like every time I, I fly over there, I'm like, just you wait. Like I'm going to pave I'm going to pave that state with solar. No, I, I just want to come back to like, this point because transferred. There's transfer this idea. Is what I was ask. Like. If you if you want a carbon neutral fuel, the best way of doing it right now is what's called biofuel. So you grow a bunch of corn or soy or something else, and then you feed it into a machine that then like processes it into into ethanol, or, or you can turn ethanol into other fuels as well. There's a kind of chemistry involved. Um, but at the end of the day, you, we cannot possibly produce all the oil that we need, all, mm-hmm. the, all the fuel we need that way. If we could, we would never have needed to dig up coal and oil in the first place. If we if we had, we would not have needed the Industrial Revolution to get rich. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and that that that's true even if you take into account the fact that that because of mechanization of agriculture and fertilizers were about 20 times more productive per unit area in farming than we were in pre-industrial era. Um, but even taking that into account, there's just not enough land, nowhere near enough land to produce enough oil, even for current production and consumption, let alone how much we would need if you know, all 8 billion people had as much oil as you and I do, uh, let alone if you and I start flying supersonic planes around the place, which damn well I want. Um, <laughs> so, um, so so you absolutely need to have uh, some, some method that converts solar power, which is what plants do, into usable energy at higher efficiency. And solar panels are that. They, mm-hmm. they are much, much more efficient. They're about 1,000 times more productive per unit area in terms of generating usable energy than plants are. Uh, and the reason for that is plants use most of their energy, you know, transpiring water and trying to stay cool and fighting bugs and you know, growing um, and, and being alive and making seeds and shit like that, right? Whereas solar panels- You're
1: Inefficient plants. We figured it? out how to use the sun way better.
2: Well, I mean, it was kind of quite serious. So you can you can buy a solar array right now, which is about 25% efficient, mm-hmm. and slap that on the ground. And the power that comes out of that, you can run that into a, into a battery at greater than 90% efficiency. And then you can discharge that battery at greater than 90% efficiency, much greater than 90% efficiency, into a motor, which itself runs at much greater than 90% efficiency. So you can actually get about 20% uh, overall efficiency cradle to grave from the sunlight that hits the earth into an electric motor, which is shaft work. It's mechanical work. Um, and an awful lot of our machines are essentially it just motors somewhere, uh, making things move around. Um, uh, it's even more efficient than that if you just try to make heat, right? You can you can actually until quite recently, the cheapest way of getting heat was to burn coal or gas, natural gas. Now uh, to make a flame. Nowadays, the cheapest way of getting heat is to run power out of a solar array into a giant resistor. Right, <laughs> like, so you just make it like a giant pile of resistors, you know, a hundred meters wide or something like that, uh, and you can you can heat that up to a thousand degrees Celsius. It'll stay hot for a year, right? Wow. So you can store heat like through the winter in these kind of, no, no actually not that large in the grand scheme of things, like you know, small building-sized um, pile of bricks that you heat up to till they're glowing and and wrap them in insulation and they stay hot. We used I to do like that with that. ice, actually. That's how we used to store really? ice. Yeah. So back in the day, if you wanted to keep your food cool in summer, you'd you'd cut up ice out of the out of the lake in the winter, and you'd store it in hay, you know, in, in, uh, under piles of grass to, to keep it uh-huh. cool all summer. You know, in some in the back corner of the barn.
1: Yeah, yeah, just, just yeah. insulated in the shade. Yeah, exactly. And, and if you have a big
2: enough big enough block of it, and you insulate the outside of it, it'll stay cold. You know, that's kind of how glaciers work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice and shiny, and they they stay cold.
1: If I have a window on one side of it, uh, on each side of it, plants. And then near one of the plants, I do um, a solar panel. Then I close that window. And from that solar panel, I power a little generator that lights a UV bulb Mm. that that is going to shine on the plant that is inside. No bugs, no weather to deal with. Do you think that plant, I'd be using the sun. And you could recover the water too. (laughs) So I'm like ultra efficient. And just that plant that is outside, if every now and again we open the window and be like, look how your friend here is doing. The friend would be leaps and bounds doing better, likely
2: well i think i think for some kinds of plants um um you know, particularly the, the kind of leafy uh, leafy crops um there's actually a number of companies out there that are doing containerized agriculture so they can completely control the environment right so you say well um you know what was the what was the best year for for basil in tuscany right mm-hmm. uh, So basil basil in tuscany and you say well the 1996 is a good year okay well we'll look up <laughs> the historical weather records for 1996 and then we will grow the, the basil in this container and it will think that it's in Tuscany in 1996. Wow. Like every single aspect of its environment is controlled that way. Um, and and the nice thing about that is, you know, you, you, you're you using fertilizers and chemicals and stuff, but it's localized. Um, so you're not you're just kind of spraying it outside. Um, mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about bugs, so you don't have to go and, and spray your entire s- situation with bugs. You don't have to worry about weeds. Um, it's much more controlled. And actually, I think um, the Netherlands has, has really um, advanced the state of the art for, you know, kind of semi-automated um, greenhouse agriculture in this way. But I think if you're growing, you know, corn and soy, you know, the, the, it's it's kind of a a state state sized crop. You know? Yeah, like, yeah well, you we go t- to the Midwest. Twenty something states are covered in it. Yeah, uh, and again, that comes back to the solar question. People are like, oh, you need a lot of land for solar. It's certainly true, um, but nowhere near as much as we use in corn and soy. And in fact, if we're directly displacing biofuels, it's about fifty or a hundred times more productive. Uh, per unit land than, than biofuels, you know, so every every acre you put under solar. And it doesn't have to be arable land, right? you, you pick some some land with nothing growing on it in Nevada, say, and, yeah. and you put an acre under solar and then you can free up a hundred acres of otherwise, you know, previously productive um forest or or um your temperate forest or, or, or prairie in, in the Midwest and you can just like rewild that if you want and you still have the same amount of fuel and it is cheaper. <laughs> right? In practice you might just go on making corn forever for no reason. But but I think um I actually think by twenty fifty we will make most of our starches, fats, and proteins synthetically as well. It's just a thousand times more productive. So a lot less land under production. Nevada is going to be it. We don't have to... You don't have to irrigate it. Yeah. You don't have to spray it. You don't have to fertilize it. You just put some glass out on the ground and uh, and come by every... every. Well, you send a robot by every every few weeks to sweep the dust off. And, you know, pave the world with solar panels. I mean, not, not even the whole world. Actually, a relatively small fraction of it. And But the crazy thing is you can do that and you can completely... Free humanity from the limitations of geology when it comes to oil, yeah, energy (laughs) because there's only so much underground.
1: Yeah, and and beat the clock on that reserve. You know, every now and then you hear of like a a place previously thought to be tapped out somehow generating a little more unexpectedly, or seeps, or things that well, maybe maybe it's self-sustaining. Maybe it's going to just keep Mm, generating this. And I think that seems. No, so
2: every year we we burn up thousands of years of accumulated uh, carbon. Right. Mm -hmm. So oil and oil and coal are. Um, the remains of, of ancient ancient trees and swamps and stuff like that. Um, opinions vary on exactly how it got there, but but essentially, coal beds were laid down before fungi figured out how to, to, how, to how to eat um, how to eat cellulose. But it was a, essentially a, a plastic waste, right? Like mm-hmm. cellulose is a biopolymer that was non biodegradable, which is why <laughs> trees made themselves out of it for a hundred million years, and um, and then and then fungi figured out how to how to break it down, and so after that. You know the remains of these forests got broken down into into what we now call oil, but <laughs> but there's there's only so much of it underground. Um, there's a shitload of natural gas as well, and actually natural gas exists, uh, like mineral natural gas, if you like, non non biogenic natural gas exists as well. Underground, it kind of bubbles out of the out of the mantle, mm-hmm. um, which is yeah. If, if we were to burn all of that, we'd be in dire straits as far as climate goes, but we won't have to because it will be significantly cheaper to go and get that oil by. But to go make that oil and gas synthetically with solar panels, then, than to drill holes in the ground. Right now, in the United States, it costs uh, roughly fifteen million dollars to drill and finish a well, and about a quarter of those wells are productive enough to pay for themselves. So, um, so it's so like you need kind of sixty million dollars in your in your kitty yeah. to gamble, right? Just to drill one productive well, and so just in the last ten years, like thousands and thousands of operators have lost their shirts doing this. Some of them have made banks. some of them have done quite well, um, but most of them have have really really struggled uh, in, in the fracking boom. And, and it's not to, getting cheaper, right? Solar is getting cheaper, but drilling is not getting so cheaper. So I was going
1: to say, if you're one of those people who lost that money and then you look back and you go, man, it was not a sure thing, but certainly much closer to that to if I had to put down some solar panels in this well, thing area. about
2: solar panels is, is you know, you, you get what you ask for, you know, like sure, like the the economic productivity is maybe not as spectacular as like, you know, drilling the the, the, the gusher of a career or something, the gusher of a lifetime mm-hmm. um, for oil, um, but you know, you, you lay them on the ground and they, they come with a warranty attached and 99.99% uptime, you know, guaranteed productivity and, you know, It's not like you're rolling the dice every time you drill a hole in the ground. So, um, so I think this is, this is quite clear and, and, and also obviously like in some parts of the United States, you can drill and get gas pretty easily, but, but in, um, in a lot of the world, you cannot do that. There's just none there. Like basically the entirety of East Asia does not have enough oil. Mm-hmm. It's been a major cause of geopolitical angst there for more than hundred years. Uh, same, same goes in Europe. Um, and and even if a country quote unquote has enough oil, it's very rarely under the city where people live. Los Angeles is actually an exception in that regard. Los Angeles is a huge oil basin, but even then it's not enough for what we consume. Um, Los Angeles uh, imports oil from the Middle East as well, which is just nuts
1: <laughs> and they just finally the the few derricks that are here, the few pumps that are working, I think they finally just passed a measure where they're going to like
2: discontinue those completely. yeah, they passed a measure to outlaw production within x thousand feet of of a school or a house or something like that, which basically expands, expands, expands like over time, yeah. which I have to say, having been to these conferences, the industry is not all that impressed by. Um, and it, and I think, I mean, to be really pragmatic, I think it's actually not great because these wells, they're in production, economically productive. They, um, the companies that operate them are heavily regulated and and there's someone to talk to if there's a leak right if there's if the gas leak or something like that they can go and fix it whereas if they're forced to walk off and abandon like some fraction of them will just be abandoned that'll become public a public problem to fix um and then at the same time like you know the oil that we don't produce in california is oil we have to import from the middle east and the, the emissions of producing that oil and gas and refining it here in the united states is um i mean it's objectively the case that it is it is far far lower than just the emissions you get from the oil tankers Id- idling in port of long beach mm-hmm. and los angeles you know spewing the pollution all over those communities so um, yeah, I think I think I think it's definitely a good thing that we're able to import over how much oil we need from from overseas. Um, but I also think that California is uh, like Texas, are stupendously energy rich, um, and we should definitely. Um, I, I see no reason to to, to rush the retirement of these wells before we we push them out naturally in the next ten years or so with with uh, solar powered synthetic stuff, which which That's- is happening as well. But actually, the major break on solar deployment right now, like the major thing slowing us down, Environmental Protection Act, mm-hmm. right that the act that was put in place in 1970 to try and like slow down the rate at which we're destroying the environment is now slowing down the rate at which we're able to restore the <laughs> environment like the, way, the rate at which we're able to displace coal essentially right yeah. like, so every for every year that you delay um dropping a gigawatt of solar on the ground and displacing a gigawatt of coal production costs about 70 something lives right so it's roughly equivalent to the total Net impact of of Volkswagen's cheating diesels, which Volkswagen fired uh find a total of thirty three billion for so far thirty three billion dollars, huge huge fuck up, um, and and yet you know there, there's there's terawatts and terawatts of solar in the pipeline, and it's it's in the pipeline because the Environmental Protection Act like makes them wait four years to put it on the ground. So like we are literally killing more than a 9-11's worth of people every nine months here in the United States, uh, because no one is able to be like, hey, like uh, EPA, like can you Say okay, it's all you. Just go. Like, just the, middle, go. <laughs> the,
1: the thing I find here that I can relate to that, that maybe is in listening to this. I would guess, uh, say the description of this episode involves your company dealing with climate change. That might turn people off to begin with on one side of things, say politically or wherever they exist. And I know that side. I'm mean, oh, yeah, growing yeah. up around ranches and being out with horses. Oh, actually, the environment. Like, we get
2: like, we get more more support from the from the red state, like pro oil people, even though we're you know, granola chomping <laughs> left coast coastal hippie elites um you know obviously ideologically motivated by by trying to address climate change but we're pragmatists we want to make more energy and we want to make more energy in the form of molecules which you know i don't have to tell you like everything in this room that you can see is made from oil right mm-hmm. your clothes are made from oil the computer's made from oil the table's made from oil the container that we're drinking our water is made from oil this every plastic every paint every uh chemical you name it manufacturing process um it's all powered by oil and gas um pigments uh, fertilizers pesticides pharmaceuticals adhesives et cetera et cetera et cetera right it's all oil it's the age of oil I mean, <laughs> this is not the iron age this is the oil age um and so you, you, the, the the idea that you could just like switch it all off and, and fully electrify and it would just be fine is um crazy quite' quite frankly crazy, crazy. Yeah, it's it's crazy that said you know it, we were also we've also found our mission has been well received on on the left broadly speaking um because it basically says well you know we have a way to um to basically you know win win right so' it's, it's square the circle solve, solve the problem without uh, without forcing um without forcing people to accept you know gr- grinding poverty and and without you know drilling and significantly less environmental degradation uh obviously putting solar panels on the ground has an impact but as far as impacts go it's like i wish i it's it's less impact than riding a motorcycle like you know if, you, if you're in some random part of nevada and you're like tearing around on an atv it's mm-hmm. more impact than just putting a solar panel on the ground and then 20 years later if you decide to like p- picking it up and putting it in the trash like it's a piece of glass <laughs> it's like put a piece of glass in the ground um it's it's completely inert uh, and actually in some places the major problem it causes is that it cools the surface of the ground enough that uh that moisture can like accumulate and then plants start growing, and then the plants start growing up between the solar panels and like have to send come <laughs> out there with a weed in whacker, it whacker it or something. So, in the robots. so if you're concerned about desertification, actually, the best way to, to reverse desertification is to throw solar panels up over the <laughs> land. Um it's, it's objectively it's objectively the case. This this is definitely true. Um not maybe maybe not everywhere, but in in many, many places we've seen a significant increase in in um in vegetation growth uh under under solar rays than in the adjacent areas that are not. Not shaded. So, <laughs> not exactly a surprise, not exactly a mystery. The ground's 50 degrees Celsius, nothing grows. But um, anyway.
1: An unexpected occurrence. Hang on, too much. No, yeah.
2: no, no. But, I but li- Nevada mean, is going down. Like, we are, we're going to pave that. I mean, it's mostly BLM land, and sooner or later. Well, as we someone that
1: rode production. out through those acres and acres and miles and miles, or just driving through them, there's something pleasant and people in the Midwest that go you know it's a little disingenuous to say this is how it's always been it's really prairie so everything we have done has been to well it was farmed intensively
2: by indigenous people as well like the Mississippi civilizations just, but
1: just humans taking humans We're from humans, like yeah. what you showed up on on planet earth and there is just prairie grass and then we domesticate and start growing crops and oh no we, we have I
2: mean like everywhere on earth except in Africa we wiped out all the megafauna mm-hmm. like, all of it almost all of it without exception uh, to the point like you know um, you know, giant sloths and, and mammoths and, and, and so on in North America Um yeah, and multiple species of wolves and stuff all gone. Like humans, humans yeah. came in. Like okay, we're here now. We're eating everything. Yeah. Um. There were there were like a dwarf species of woolly mammoth survived on the the Channel Islands until relatively recently. But you know, pretty tasty. So, <laughs> not so long. Um. Uh. You know the even in New Zealand there was um there was uh, megafauna that were birds you know, mo- moa many species of moa and also a giant eagle that preyed on the moa, and humans very quickly with their fire and their tools and their edged weapons and their social communication and so on. I uh, came there and and, um, and made short work of them. The only place where the megafauna survived is in Africa because it co-evolved with humans. Mm-hmm. And even then, once we invented gunpowder, it was very one-sided. Uh,
1: <laughs> I just think that when you have a place that you think is, oh, this is so, it's nature. I can ride out through this and it's nature. Mm. And not really taking into account like, yeah, but we manufactured this. We manipulated this to the point. But if you extrapolate that further into everyone just jumps from the future and it is always dystopian oh yeah. man like solar panels everywhere and food grown in a different place that's can't go to that but we're already kind of there yeah, hate what we've i hate growing food i hate
2: cheap food cheap food's the worst you know, like, <laughs> that's actually kind of the crazy thing which is because when, when you say well like we need to put in a carbon tax or or you need know, carbon offsets for aircraft or whatever what you're effectively saying is we need to make energy more expensive and mm-hmm. for people like you and i it's neither here nor there really you know like it turns out for me it's actually significantly cheaper for me just to pay additional energy bill than to re-insulate my house which was built a long time ago and is not well insulated at all um and um but for most of the world's population making energy expensive is like you know if you do enough their children die yeah Mm -hmm. so like my children are not going to die if gas prices go up by a factor of two but like a lot of the world's population is going to be in serious trouble if that happens and so i think you know when you say well you know, we, we we want to make it harder to grow plants or something what you're really saying is I want food to be expensive for poor people. You say um you know factory farming has certain ethical difficulties that's certainly true um but also making meat unaffordable for, for poorer people has ethical difficulties so <laughs> so you know you, you there's always two sides to that coin um and I think it's underappreciated that that this is a you you there's always unintended consequences for for making it more difficult to make stuff because you know having stuff is is good. <laughs> Having stuff is good. Uh, yeah, don't do not romanticize the plight of, of of the of the poor and desperate in the world. I think I think they would, um, they would they'd most likely swap with any of us in a heartbeat. And I know that for a fact. I mean, I'm am I'm a U.S. citizen actually. Now it was not when we first spoke. But Congratulations. I'm now now stuck here. You can't get rid of me. I'm a, I'm a citizen. <laughs> um, yeah. So like the vision, the vision that I have that the, the, that I want to build for the future is is. Um, is not one where where, where we we solve the emissions problems of aviation by making aviation unaffordable and uh, and by forcing customers to pay for you know, carbon offsets at the point of sale that are pretty pointless and useless anyway like a lot of carbon offsets are kind of like I'll cut down this forest if you don't pay me money right which is yeah. like okay whatever it doesn't actually solve anything right it doesn't actually create economic productivity It's just like those you know, if if they do what they say that the industries get to live another 6 weeks that's it yeah um so um i think it's better to say well you know actually uh, instead of having to do that what if what if we half the price of your airfare so that you know another hundred million people can afford to fly uh, and we do that by providing a higher quality lower lower polluting and uh, carbon neutral fuel that's cheaper just because we put a shitload of solar panels out on the ground in the middle of nowhere where no one ever goes and now it's productive it's a hundred times more productive than farming but it doesn't involve pesticides or yeah or um, irrigation and you know building giant dams and moving water around so yeah this is definitely the future <laughs> and then of course for the ai People, you know, the artificially intelligent, the, the 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 brains live in data centers. They just kind of connect directly to the solar array, and there's no intermediate reality for them either. The
1: the, the impulse <laughs> or the the catalyst behind this, the driving force, the thing that's precipitating the drive for Terraform Industries, I think, comes mm. from empathy and kindness and wanting to solve problems. And I oh, want to yeah. get more into that. I don't know if you're into taking like a little break, and then I really want to like focus on. Terraform Industries and...
2: Oh, yeah. We didn't, we didn't set out to be like, you know, moustache-dwelling capitalist meanies. Like, we, we, we set out... All of us kind of quit our current jobs to, to come and do something cool, right? To work on something cool.
1: Well, I hope you like that. I certainly did. Come back for Part 2. Part 2. <laughs> come back for Part 2. It gets pretty interesting. Oh, it really does. And uh, we talk a little bit more about Terraform Industries, his new endeavor since leaving JPL. And, yeah coming out for the haters a little bit because now he's not um, beholden to any kind of, um, well, you know, I'm here on behalf of my employers. I can't talk about this. I thought it was pretty bold. I liked it. So part two coming next time, or if you join the Patreon, you can listen to the whole conversation straight through. Thanks to those of you who do support the show that way. It means a lot. I appreciate it. Again, new, these are those tapes, new intercepts, Find out all the information at davidhuntsberger.com. There are newsletters you can sign up for. And again, if you need to reference or need to reach out and contact this show, pings at the spacecave.com. All right, let's get out of here. This is a song called Leash by Sir Chloe. I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the space cave.
3: You can come in through the door.